So the reading tonight is taken from the book of Luke, chapter 24, and I'm going to be reading verses 1 to 12, and then starting again at verse 36 to 49. Luke, chapter 24. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their voices to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The son of man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the, to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. Verse 36. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Verse 37. 
This is the wonderful word of God. Well, good evening. My name is Jana Browning, and let me add a very warm welcome to HT this evening, particularly if you're visiting. It's great to have you here with us. Uh, now, my husband and I enjoy a good zoo. We were recently at Chester Zoo, which we highly recommend. Um, I love the experience of seeing animals that I never knew existed, much less kind of hearing about them and then seeing them in the flesh. Things like um, the octopi. Have you heard of the octopi? It's got like the back end of a zebra, like striped, and then the rest of it is like a horse. But then it's got like this, it looks like a giraffe's neck. I mean, you can't make this stuff up, but I saw one, right? So there's cool stuff, but there's also fun to people watch at zoos. It's always fun to people watch, but particularly zoos. And the kids, some of the kids are absolutely fascinated. And, you know, seeing a delighted kid warms the heart, doesn't it? Um, but then there are some kids who are just don't care about the elephant and are fascinated by the ordinary pigeon eating a moldy sandwich on the path in front of them, right? And then there was this one kid at Chester Zoo who is clearly very hot on his farmyard animals. And so he's there with his dad, and he looks at something exotic and endangered, like the octopi, and he's like, Dad, it's a cow. And his dad, you can just tell his dad is like, oh, man. He's like, he wants to encourage his kid, but at the same time, he's like, the only reason why we're here, miles from home, having paid a considerable amount of money, carrying our weight in snacks and fruit juice, is because that is absolutely not a cow. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, this evening in our passage, the disciples are faced with something that they don't have the language for. It doesn't fit in any of their categories. They can't articulate what's in front of their eyes. And what's in front of their eyes is the resurrected Jesus. Now, this evening, we're not going to look at the evidence for the resurrection, although that is a fascinating study. And if you're interested in that, there's lots to be said for that. Instead, what we're going to look at is the meaning of the resurrection, the so what, as it were, of the resurrection. We're going to look at the resurrection as a beginning and as an end. Two ends, in fact, and a beginning. We're going to start with the ends, and then we're going to finish the beginning <laughs> with the beginning, if that makes sense. But before we dive in, let me just pray for us. Will you pray with me? Father God, thank you so much that you're here with us this evening. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it has as much power tonight as it has ever had. And we pray that you would use it to speak to us. Would you show us who you are and make us more like you? In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's start. So, firstly, the resurrection is the end of death. It's the end of death. Let me ask you a question. What is the difference between Jesus being raised from the dead and the other people who are raised from the dead in the Bible? Right? Have you ever wondered that? What makes Jesus' resurrection so special? We have accounts of Lazarus rising from the dead and Jairus' daughter. We have other examples in the Old Testament and even more in the New. Well, the truth is there are a few differences, but the main one is that in all other examples, uh, all the other examples are raised temporarily. Lazarus dies again later, right, and stays dead. So did all of the others. Only Jesus didn't die again a second time, and he never will. He's alive now and will be forever. You see, death used to be the one great inevitability. 
the one great inescapable force. It snapped like a trap on every single human being eventually, no matter how we tried to run. No matter if you escaped it for a little while like Lazarus, the reign of death was absolute until Jesus. Death snaps like a trap over him. He wasn't avoiding it. He rather walked into it, and it simply couldn't hold him. Jesus busts the trap open and left it lying there in pieces. And that's it. Death paid its card and lost. It is not as if, right, Jesus is now like a spy who kind of tricked him and he slipped out, but now he has to keep his head down. He has to keep one step ahead of death for the rest of his life, like James Bourne, right? It's not like that. Death played its card and lost. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, death simply isn't deadly anymore. And this is not metaphorical. Lots of people love Easter, right? Christians and, and, and not. What's not to like, right? It's about love triumphing over death. It's about light at the end of the tunnel and the phoenix rising from the ashes, right? It's like the spirit of Jesus lives on. So death cannot stamp out the power of love. We love to spiritualize the Easter story, to make it an allegory or a fable like tortoise and the hare. But this is not a fable. We're not talking about the end of metaphorical death or the end of emotional death, although all of that's included. We are talking about physical death. When Jesus appears to his disciples here, he's not a spirit. He's not a ghost, although that's the explanation that they reach for. Did you notice that? Look at verse 37, if you've still got it open. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. That's the first explanation they reached for, right? They're, they're familiar with the idea that sometimes people have dreams or experiences of the recently dead. That, that's where their brain goes. They're like, it's a cow? That's where they go. What they can't understand and what Jesus emphasizes and demonstrates is, that his, is his physical presence with them. They're not confused by his spiritual presence. They're confused by his physical presence. Look at verse 39. Look at my hands and feet, he says. It is I myself, touch me and see. He says, I have flesh and bones. And then he sits down and he eats a fish. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of that awkward feeling when you realize you're the only one eating and everyone is watching you. <laughs> Jesus knows that feeling. <laughs> he just sits down and he starts eating the fish and their eyes are glued to him. He is flesh and bone. In the resurrection of Jesus, the physical finality of death is undone. The reign of death is broken. And there's more. Because you see, the reign of death was really the reign of something else. It was really the reign of something else. It was the reign of sin. Sin claims its dues with death. The wages of sin is death. But if Jesus broke the reign of death, if the physical finality of death is over, that means he broke the, the reign of sin. And suddenly our sins, our pettiness and arrogance and greed and pervertedness have been robbed of their power. They used to ruin us. They used to consume us. They used to poison everything that we touch. They used to kill us. We were rebels, yes, responsible for it all and eventually always consumed by our rebellion but not anymore. 
Jesus, the one sinless man, walked into the death we owed for our rebellion, and then he walked out again. The cost has been paid. And Jesus, what mercy has said that we can claim his payment as our own? We can stand and point at Jesus and say, he said he paid for me. He said he paid for me. Jesus says in verse 47 here, he's explaining this to the disciples. He says, forgiveness of sin will be preached in his name. He says he paid for us. And therefore, sin has no power over us. We are forgiven. The resurrection is the end of death. It's the end of death. And the resurrection is the end of the search. It's our second end. It's the end of a search Uh, We can slip into thinking of Jesus um, a bit like a spiritual Roger Bannister. For those of you who don't immediately place the name, Roger Bannister was the first chap who, on the record, uh, ran the mile in under four minutes, right? You're probably familiar with the story. It was thought to be a physical impossibility for the human being to run a mile in less than four minutes, and then good old Roger did it in just under with a hair's breadth. And suddenly, people knew it wasn't impossible anymore. And then if you really trained, if you really tried, you could do it too. And suddenly everyone was doing it. By everyone, I mean very few exceptional athletes. (laughs) You know what I mean. Um, Roger showed it was not impossible, that it could be done, and the door is open for others to do it too. We can start to think of Jesus in the same way. Now that he showed there's a way to push through death, for love to triumph, now that we realize it can be done, And anyone with the motivation and the hard work can do it too. Jesus was a trailblazer. But that is just not what the resurrection means. Jesus explains to his disciples in verse 47 that because of his death and resurrection, right, repentance for the forgiveness of sins, we just talked about that, will be preached in his name to all nations. Jesus was not showing that love could triumph over death, saying, if I can do it, you can do it too. All you have to do is like take it at this angle and put your head back and eat your spinach. You could do it too. No. No. He was explaining that he and he alone could triumph over death. That forgiveness and therefore eternal life was offered in his name alone. You will hear talk about spiritual journeys, that we're all on a spiritual journey in our own way, in the search for life and meaning. But the resurrection means that the search is over. There is only one spiritual journey that is not a dead end. There is only one spiritual journey that ends in life, and it is the spiritual journey of Jesus Christ. All through his teaching, Jesus is emphatic that he is the one and the only one who could push through death. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the resurrection proved he was right. In the resurrection, Jesus tears a hole in the back of death, as Steve put it last week. But this hole that he's torn in the back of death is the exact shape. It is the perfect likeness of Jesus Christ. And no one who is not the exact shape and perfect likeness of Jesus Christ is going to get through it. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Unless we walk the spiritual journey of Jesus Christ, we just aren't going to make it. 
And that's why the New Testament is full of things like being united in Jesus' suffering, about being baptized into his death so that we can rise in his life again. We have to walk Jesus' spiritual journey. But friends, this is why it's so important that Jesus isn't just an example, that he's not just a trailblazer, right? We don't have to peer at Jesus across 2,000 years of cultural, historical, philosophical, sociological, theological distance and try to shape ourselves into what he looks like. Partly because he's alive so we can know him now, but probably because we could never do that. We could never be the perfect shape, the exact likeness of Jesus Christ, not even close, but there is another way. God has made a way for us to be in Jesus, to be hidden in him, included in him somehow. That's also all over the New Testament, that we're in Christ. There's no condemnation for who? those in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Somehow, by the power and mercy of God, we are included in Jesus as he tears a hole in death. And the resurrection is the end of the search. Now, I know that this sounds like a massive claim, that only one spiritual journey works, and every other spiritual journey is a dead end. But it is not a claim that we make. It is not a claim that Christians make about their lives. It is a claim that Jesus makes about himself. He makes it about himself. And if this sounds like a bit too much, if you think he's bitten off something that more than he can chew, then go and read about him. Read who he was, read his words, read his life. See if this is a man of integrity or if he's off his rocker. This is a claim he makes about himself. And we must not miss the astonishing truth that there is now a way through death. The search is over. The way is found, and God himself enables us to take it. Did you know that very, very early Christianity was called the way? Very early Christians were called followers of the way. The way has been found. So let me ask you a fairly direct question. Are you trying to make your own way? Are you borrowing things from Jesus maybe? Do you see him as a good role model but essentially you're making your own way? Please hear me. Unless we trust completely in Jesus, unless we throw all of our eggs into his basket, our spiritual journeys will be dead ends. We must commit to walking his spiritual journey, to trust that we are counted in him, to hide ourselves completely in him. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the end of the search. So the resurrection is the end of death, and it's the end of the search, and finally, it's also a beginning. The resurrection is the beginning of the new creation. It's the beginning of the new creation. Remember that kid in the, in the zoo earlier? The disciples, like that kid, are confused. They don't have language to describe what's in front of them. Jesus' resurrected body is physical. We talked about that before. But at the same time, is it really? It's not normal, right? Let's take some details that they record here, some in Luke in our passage and some from other accounts. On the one hand, Jesus is the same. 
They can touch him, right? He can eat, he can cook. Um, His body is missing from the tomb, and the one that they can see has scars in it in the right place. So the suggestion is it's probably the same body somehow, right? He's the same in some way. On the other hand, Jesus is not the same. He can walk through locked doors. He just disappears into thin air sometimes. He isn't always recognizable. And then he just ascends into heaven, which is not normal. What does this mean? What kind of body is this that is capable of appearing through a solid wall and then sitting down to eat? The answer is they have no idea. There's no precedent for this. This is totally new. Jesus' resurrected body is an entirely new category of human life. He is the prototype of the new creation God has planned. Except prototype sounds like, makes it sound like it's not perfected. He is the perfected prototype, the first shining example of the new creation. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Jesus is described as the first fruits or the firstborn of the new life that God will bring. And therefore, the resurrected Jesus, he is what we will be if we walk the spiritual life of Jesus. We will be like this resurrected Jesus in some way. It's not only a spiritual future that we have, like we're just going to be disembodied spirits, but a physical future too. We will be eternally physical as well as eternally spiritual. Now, this leads to all kinds of questions, obviously. We simply don't know what the relationship is between our bodies now and what our bodies will be, and it could all get very complicated very quickly, and we don't have time for that, so we're not gonna talk about that, but what we need to ask is what does this mean for us now? What does it mean for us now to see Jesus in his resurrected body and think that's what we're going to be? What does it mean for us now? I think it means three things, at least, and these will be brief, don't worry. Firstly, it means we are going to miss out on nothing. We are going to miss out on nothing. Physical pleasures, as well as spiritual pleasures, if indeed you can divide them so clearly in the future, will be waiting for us. We will be flesh and bones in our life after death. And I know that the descriptions in the Bible um, of heaven and the end times are deeply bewildering. Most of them are imagery, right? They're symbolic. But we we leap to them thinking that, that there's no kind of physical reality behind that symbolism, that it's all just kind of some kind of spiritual abstract reality. But Jesus has flesh and bones. Is there any reason to think that the wedding feast of the lamb is not going to be an actual meal? And probably the best one we've, well, it's definitely the best one we will ever have. We are going to miss out on nothing. We don't have to live our lives with FOMO, right? The fear of missing out. So many in the West particularly are chasing experience. Great sex, seeing the world, exotic food and far-flung adventures, skydiving. But we don't have to frantically chase these things because we'll have all the time in the world to enjoy amazing food, 
to see the world recreated. I don't have to skydive now. I could do it later. And if I do it later, I can't break any bones, which sounds preferable to me. We are going to miss out on nothing good. Secondly, this new creation means that our physical bodies matter. Our future will be flesh and bones, which means that God cares about and is some way committed to flesh and bones. Our physical bodies were not designed to get thrown away. We don't know how they'll look, how they'll be transformed, what we'll keep, whether we'll be recognizable, but clearly our bodies are not designed to get thrown away. God's work of recreation includes our physicality. And that means that our physicality matters. That following Jesus is not just a matter of the heart and mind, but of the body too. And this is why sexual ethics is such a big deal in the New Testament. It's one of the primary ways we allow God to shape us into the exact shape, the perfect likeness of Jesus. Our bodies matter. And thirdly, finally, this new creation means that sacrifice, sacrifice is a different ballgame. It's a different ballgame, which is an Americanism, I know. It means that new rules apply. The goalposts have changed, right? We're playing something else now. If we're not going to miss out on anything, then giving things up here and now for the sake of Jesus' reputation is not nearly as difficult as before. So what if being generous now means I can't eat, taste the difference every day. I'm going to taste the difference forever, right? What does it matter if I, giving God my money now means that I can't have a nice holiday every year? I will have knockout holidays in spades later. Of course, we know that God doesn't want us to live miserable lives here. Remember how he changed water into that first-rate wine at the wedding, right? He blesses us here and now. But... When he asks us to sacrifice, when he asks us to sacrifice things like time, money, and energy, and that sacrifice limits our opportunities here on earth, it will be worth it. It will be worth it. Jesus talks about this, right? He talks about it. He talks about those who give up father, mother, brother, children, fields, and homes for him, right? And he doesn't say, those who give up father, mother, brother, children, fields, and homes for me will discover that they were just distractions, or will discover that they were just illusions, or will discover that they were just, you know, all they needed was me. What does he say? Matthew 9, 19, 29, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Our rewards in heaven will be in kind. We won't recognize some of them, but others we will. They will be recognizable to us. And this changes the game on sacrifice, doesn't it? Can you say delayed gratification? Whatever we give up or walk away from in obedience to Jesus will be rewarded us. Now, just to be clear, the way that rewards work as Jesus talks about it, it's not like um, some kind of magic springboard, right? The sacrifice springboard where you just kind of put down a second home in Hawaii and boing, a second home in Hawaii appears for you on the other side. It's not, it's not one for one. It's not like for like. It's not a mechanism like that. 
We follow Jesus' example. What does he do? He says, into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. And we, we put the things, as Jesus leads us to, at his request, for his sake, we put these things down into, into God's hands. And it is from the hands of God that we are rewarded according to his judgment and his wisdom and his generosity. And we can trust him absolutely. We can trust him absolutely. What does Jesus say earlier in Luke? In Luke 6, he says this, Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead changes the ball game for sacrifice. So let me ask you another fairly direct question. Is there anything that God has asked from you that you are not giving him because you're afraid you'll miss out on something? Are you afraid of missing out on an impressive career? Or a nice car? Or a comfortable life? Are you afraid of missing out on a spouse? On an important reputation? On physical beauty? On children? Don't you know, friends, that we will miss out on nothing? That when we give our lives to trust and obey Jesus, no matter what he asks of us, that we will be rewarded, that it will be 100% worth it in the end. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Be brave. Sacrifice what God has asked you to sacrifice. It will be worth it. He has given us his word. To close, um, I'm just going to read to you what Paul writes to the Christians in Corinth um, about our future. I don't invite the band to jump up while I do this. This is what Paul writes to the Christians. Listen, he says, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must be clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Amen.